0: Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13, says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and there... And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. According to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be spoken or that might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets he shall be called a nazarene the united states produces coins at four sizable minting factories and Denver and Philadelphia, San Francisco and West Point, New York. You always want to see if where your coin was made. You can look on the obverse side, we call it heads, to see which one of the letters it has on it, D for Denver or P for Philadelphia and, and on. With about 28 billion coins in circulation, the US has to mass produce its currency as well as doing special collectible coins coin making in the ancient world was not nearly so convenient each one had to be crafted by hand round flat molds were made from sand and uh, heat resistant clay hot metal was poured into them and the resulting discs were then trimmed and measured to make sure they were the right weights and the right size because they wanted coins to be standard the discs which would be blank at that point the blanks were then taken one at a time to an anvil and were set carefully on top of a small die, at which point a second die was placed on top and a craftsman with a very large hammer would come along and strike that top die one time. The blow would smash the disc between the top and bottom die, producing an obverse and reverse side of the coin or heads and tails is what we call them. So, For example, in Matthew chapter 22, when the Jewish leadership challenged Jesus about whether or not they should pay taxes, Jesus asked them to produce a Roman coin called a denarius and asked, whose inscription and image is this? Coincidentally, they didn't have much choice in their answer because if they were looking at the head's side, that denarius would have had a picture of the head of tiberius caesar and if they looked at the tail side it would have had a picture of tiberius caesar sitting on the throne so either way they looked at it they had to answer that that was an image of caesar now let me ask you when when they picked up a roman denarius and saw the image of tiberius caesar were they actually holding caesar in their hand No, of course not. The denarius was about the size of our dime. It would be like us picking up a dime and thinking that we were holding Franklin D. Roosevelt in our hands. That's not what that is. It is an image, it is a picture of Franklin D. Roosevelt on the dime. That picture, that image that gets produced on the coin by striking it between those two dies, the ancients had a word for that. It was an action word. It was the word typos. This has come into English for us with words like typewriter, where a little die of a, of a, a letter is slammed onto a piece of paper and forms a, a, an image, or simply as the word type, which means an image, a representation, a picture of something greater. If you've been reading Matthew's gospel, and I hope you have, then you know that frequently he tells us about the events of the life and ministry of Jesus and says that it was fulfilled which was written in the prophets. Four times just in Matthew chapter 2. Four times he says that the events of the life of Jesus fulfills what was said in the Old Testament. The first time we talked about last week, up in verses 5 and 6, Jesus fulfilled the promise of the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But what we'll see this morning is that Matthew doesn't only tell us when Jesus fulfills a promise from the Old Testament, he also tells us when Jesus fulfills a type or a picture from the Old Testament. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly reads the whole Bible in a Christ-centered perspective. Direct prophetic promises, like the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, are a little bit easier to identify than prophetic pictures and types. And yet we know that types or pictures of Jesus are found throughout the Old Testament scripture. We talked about some of them this morning in the adult Sunday school class. The, the sacrificial system is a type of the greater sacrifice that Jesus will make. The, the Passover lamb is a type of the blood of Jesus sacrificed for us so that when God sees the blood, he will pass over us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, that Adam was a picture of Christ. He says he was a type of him that should come. The veil covering the Holies of Hol- Holy of Holies was a picture of our separation from God and yet it was torn from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews tells us that just like the veil was torn apart, the torn body of Jesus provides us access to God. Of the four times in this chapter that Matthew says the Old Testament is fulfilled The first time, the fulfillment is of a prophetic promise, right? The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Those things are easy to identify. The remaining three, all of them in our text this morning, are fulfillment of prophetic pictures, not prophetic promises. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, represents a prophetic picture album of Jesus from the Old Testament. So what I want to do this morning is sort of walk through this text twice. The first time, I just want to go through the narrative and let the story unfolding around the infant Jesus be seen. And the second time, we're going to focus on those three prophetic pictures and consider why is it that Matthew thinks that these are important things to point out. So we're going to go through it together twice uh, and see. First, the story that Matthew is telling, and then second, the story that God has told. Okay, the story Matthew's telling in the flow of this gospel account, we saw last week the Lord Jesus has been born in Bethlehem somewhat later, probably six months to a year later, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking about this newborn child that has a legitimate claim to the throne of David. Right up in verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? The problem of course is that there is already a man who identifies himself as king of the Jews and his name is Herod the Great. He is conniving, evil, paranoid, loathsome man and when he hears that there are some foreigners who have come to town and they're starting to ask everybody about the newborn king. Verse 3 says Herod is vexed and the whole city catches the same vibe. Nobody, including Herod himself, knows what the king is about to do, but all of them are certain that when he hears about this, what he does is not going to be good. And so... He asks the chief priests and scribes up in verse 4, where is the Christ or the Messiah supposed to be born? And he's told very straightforward in Bethlehem. Right? They quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2, one of those prophetic promises. In this case, the Messiah will be born in the city of David. Now note, just as a side note, nothing here tells us that the Jewish leadership when they hear that someone's asking about the birth of the uh, Messiah King, son of David, and that they know it should be in Bethlehem, the Jewish leadership does not rush down to Bethlehem to find him. They don't care. They're just answering Herod's question. And we noted last week that Herod hatches a a two-part plot. Plan A is to have the wise men go to Bethlehem and identify where this child is so that herod says at the end of verse 8 that i can come and worship him also but he intends nothing of the sort he just wants to know exactly where and exactly who this newborn messiah king is so he can have the child murdered plan b Just in case the Magi are unable or unwilling to provide him the information to identify this child, he asks them, when did the star appear? So he knows a rough idea of the age of this newborn child and he'll just have all of the baby boys around that age murdered. Hopefully getting the newborn king with But at this point, this is where the sovereign author of all history steps in. God warns the Magi in verse 12 not to return to Herod. They sneak out of the country some other direction. Meanwhile, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are still in Bethlehem, exposed to all the dreadful potential of King Herod's wrath. And for the remainder of the chapter, Matthew is going to trace the Lord Jesus from being an infant in Bethlehem all the way to Egypt and then back into Israel and to his ultimate home in Nazareth up north in Galilee. He unfolds this story in three parts. He describes the son of Mary exiled in verses 13 through 15. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Whatever comfort Joseph and Mary took from the visit of these magi, it was short lived. Just like Joseph had received the angelic vision uh, and and a dream telling him to go forward with his engagement and his marriage to Mary, Joseph receives another angelic vision in a dream but this time instead of giving reassurance and urging calm the angel warns of a murderous plot at the highest levels of government Herod it says will seek the young child to destroy him well where do you hide from the king the good suggestion would be find a different kingdom and of all places Egypt is the best possible option. It is about 75 miles from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. This will mean Joseph and Mary, as far as they have traveled already from their home in Nazareth to get to Bethlehem are going to travel even that distance further to get to Egypt. Um, However, at, at this point in time, Egypt is known to have a sizable colony of Jewish residents. The city of Alexandria, the same city where the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, is well known as being hospitable to Jews. It's not certain, but I think it's very likely that that's where Joseph heads with Mary and the child Jesus. The greatest advantage to that is it is well outside the domain uh, and influence of King Herod. And if Alexandria is where they went, it's a journey closer to 350 miles for them to get there. Joseph already knew to trust the first angelic message, and he takes this second one seriously. The warning that Herod will seek the young child is easily translated, Herod is about to seek him. There is this impending certainty, this danger is not just potential, it's coming, it's on the verge of arriving. And the description in verse 14 is that It's going to happen without delay. Joseph gets the dream. He wakes up and he takes the child and his mother almost certainly that night and leaves for Egypt. I have no doubt that the wise men's expensive gifts started paying dividends at this point because they're going to need resources to get there quickly and quietly out of Herod's grasp. One would think that the escape of Jesus into Egypt would have been adequate to quell Herod's wrath, but it was not. An entire village is about to experience that unfortunate truth. Verses 16 through 18 tells us that the sons of Bethlehem are slaughtered. It says, Then Herod, when he saw he was deceived by the wise men, was exceeding angry, and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This part of the nativity story doesn't show up on holiday greeting cards. It's, it's not included in cartoon television specials or gets acted out at grade school pageants. King Herod, Rome's puppet monarch, sends soldiers under his command to do their most wicked work. What unimaginable horror had to befall the residents of this village and the surrounding area when the ground begins to shake as Roman soldiers descend on Bethlehem and start tearing infants and toddlers away from their mother's arms. Now, I just wanna address the complaint is sometimes made here by those who don't believe the Bible is reliable that there's no such slaughter of the innocents that could have happened because there is no historical record in the life of Herod saying that he did this. No historian takes pen in hand and describes these events. But first, if you've watched the news of events unfolding in Israel where Hamas terrorists did exactly this, murdering infants, or our own recent history of school shootings, you know that such depraved potential exists within humanity. Herod is not immune to it. Second, as the horrific events of this scene describe, as, as horrible as they are, it would have been something that hardly caught the notice of historians. Those who document history tend to take what we call a great person's perspective, an approach to their writing. We can read about Queen so-and-so and Prince what's-his-name. Those are, those are great people, but we don't read about handmaids and ditch diggers. We know Herod murdered his wife and murdered his mother-in-law and murdered his own son, a couple of his own sons because that is a great person killing and interacting with other great people. But the events in Bethlehem, the greatest person has, has already escaped secretly. And the rest of the people in Little Bethlehem are not, historically speaking, great people. Like, we would not ex- necessarily expect to see this recorded in history. Also, because statistically speaking, it's probably smaller than you expect. Based on the estimated size of Little Bethlehem and the likely birth rates, the number of children murdered here is probably between 10. 20 and in no way does that whitewash this scene and make it any less horrific if you're one of those families or if you're from this village but it just makes it historically less significant than what we would expect to find recorded before moving on let me just say we still live in a world that is indifferent to infant life. If you find this account of murdering 10 to 12 children infuriating or heartbreaking, how much more should you react to the heartless abortion of up to 600,000 babies every year in the U.S. alone? Verses 19 through 23 is the third part of Matthew's story. The Son of God is protected. As child Jesus is not going to grow up in egypt We can't say for certain but he was likely in egypt i think for a few months before word arrives of the death of herod the great now just in case you've come to really despise herod the great at this point let me tell you how he died He would have already been sick and experiencing the effects of his disease at the point that he commanded these infants in Bethlehem to be murdered. He contracted some kind of intestinal disease, which the historian Josephus describes as maggot-filled, putrefied, ulcerated entrails. He reportedly attempted to commit suicide, but that was thwarted, and he died bedridden in pain in the city of Jericho. Also, I mentioned last week that he had arrested numerous distinguished citizens of Israel so that when when he died, they could be put to death, and all of Judea would go into mourning. But his wishes weren't carried out. He died, and they were released, and all of Judea celebrated. Unfortunately, the celebration didn't last long because Herod's son Archelaus began to rule in Judea and he was not much, if at all, better than his father. Look at verse 19. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead." Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It may be, That Archelaus shared his father's preoccupation with finding the child Messiah, or it might be that Archelaus was just generally known to be the kind of person who orders his own slaughters. Joseph is told to return, but he is warned not to return to Judea. That is, don't go back to Bethlehem. And instead, they go north into Galilee, returning to the city of Nazareth from which they first came. And interestingly enough, this area of Judea that they're escaping is now ruled over by Herod the Great's son Archelaus, but Galilee up in the north where they're going is ruled over by Herod the Great's son Herod Antipas, which doesn't seem to be any great threat. So Matthew has, has sort of told his story, he takes the infant Jesus all the way from Bethlehem to Egypt, back to Israel, up into Nazareth, and it sets the stage for the ministry of Jesus to begin. In chapter 3, verse 13, it will be an adult Jesus leaving Galilee and Nazareth and moving south toward Judea. But even as Matthew tells this story, he gives us those three references, those three pictures or types of Jesus and says this is a story that God's been telling for much longer. So let's move from the story Matthew's telling to the story that God has told. Because each of those three scenes, the, the exile to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, the move up to Nazareth, each step of the way, Matthew points back to the Old Testament and sees a picture or a type of Jesus that has been fulfilled. And so let's quickly, as we can, look at each. In verse 15, we see Jesus and a new exodus. When when Joseph is warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus into Egypt, Matthew says that he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son." All right, Matthew is quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Actually, the end of Hosea 11, verse 1. So look at that with me, if you would, because I think this is going to be helpful for our understanding. Find Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When you find it, you'll see that Matthew has quoted the last part of verse 1. The whole verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Is Hosea here talking about Jesus? Well, not really. Think about what you know about the prophet Hosea. Hosea is the one who was told that you need to go marry a prostitute and love her and know all the while she's going to be unfaithful, just like the children of Israel have been unfaithful to God. At one point, Hosea literally goes and purchases his own wife out of sexual slavery. And it's just a heartbreaking picture of his enduring love, even in the face of her unfaithfulness. And similarly, the nation of Israel, he says, was in this covenant relationship with God who drew them out of slavery. But were they faithful? Well, look at what Hosea says. This is quoting God. Hosea 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son as I called them. So they went from them. They sacrificed to the bales and burned incense to carved images. Y'all, I don't want that to be about Jesus sacrificing to bales and burning incense to carved images. Despite God calling Israel here, my son, and saying I brought them out of Egypt, they were not faithful. They were not obedient. And so now, Matthew tells us, God has sent his son Jesus into Egypt to bring him out of Egypt and faithfulness and obedience is going to be found through him alone. He is the perfect fulfillment of everything that God required, everything that the nation of Israel should have done. I've told you before that I want you to remember the truth that Jesus lived for us before he died for us, right? That God required a perfectly faithful and obedient life, and we've all failed. So before dying for our sins in our place, he came and he lived the Perfect, obedient life in our place. In that same sense, Matthew is going to show Jesus as the Savior of Israel, but what does he have to do to save Israel who has failed? He's going to come and he's going to live the perfect obedience that they failed to live. So he's going to come out of Egypt, but he's not going to do the things the nation of Israel did. He's going to remain obedient and faithful. Matthew is going to show us Jesus and how he parallels the history of Israel several times as we go through the rest of this gospel. When Matthew quotes Hosea 11 verse 1, that's what he means by it. He's not saying that Hosea gave a prophetic promise about Jesus. He's saying that God through this has given a prophetic picture of look at what Jesus is gonna do. It's a type, it's an image. It's just like a, a coin with the president's face and we can all agree, look, that's not the president, but it tells us something about what the president looks like. Similarly, the Old Testament story of God's grace to Israel, it gives us a picture of what God's grace through Jesus looks like. This is what Matthew starts picking up in these times in his uh, second chapter where he says this is fulfilling the Old Testament. The next time he does it, we see Jesus and the hope for exiles. After the slaughter of the innocents, in our text in verse 16, Matthew says in verses 17 and 18, that was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Again, Matthew is quoting the Old Testament in a very Christ-centered way. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. He wants us to see how this relates to Jesus. And so this time he's quoting the, the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah 31, verse 15. You'll see the quotation there. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, how does that relate to the slaughter in Bethlehem? I mean, Ramah, Which it describes here is a city, but the city is not the city of Bethlehem. Rachel is a mother, but she's not the mother of any of those infants in Bethlehem. Actually, she was not the mother of any of the children that Jeremiah is describing in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is writing about the Babylonian captivity in which the The children of Israel are carried away into slavery in Babylon. Jeremiah's context is not so much about murdered children as it is the stolen lives of children. And Rachel, who was the wife of Jacob, right, Israel himself, therefore she is in many ways the mother of the whole nation. So Jeremiah here uses Rachel poetically as if to say that all the matriarchs all the mothers of israel's history would would weep and mourn and refuse to be consoled by the things that they've seen here and matthew does the same thing he says look it's it's just like this all the mothers from rachel to the mothers of bethlehem are grieved by what the wicked rulers of this world have done to their children but matthew knows and he expects us to know that what he's just quoted from Jeremiah is not a hopeless text. Let's keep reading because I assure you, Matthew's audience would have known what he's quoting here. So again, Jeremiah 31 verse 15, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded says the lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future says the lord that your children shall come back to their own border like stop crying dry your tears there's hope for your future in moments of such desperation and despair what is it that could possibly give us hope I think Jeremiah in the Old Testament would tell you, even as you mourn for what you've lost, you have to know that in the future, God has this gracious plan of salvation. And I think Matthew wants us to know that even as you mourn the loss of these children in Bethlehem, there is hope for the future in God's gracious plan of salvation. Even as an infant, Jesus came into a world that was complicated and brutal and inexplicably evil he is not the hope of salvation for those who pretend that they and everything around them is absolutely fine jesus has come into a world of sin in order to bring the peace that that world so desperately needs and nothing designed to disrupt that peace no no brutal act meant to stand in the way be it the captivity of Israel's children to Babylon, or the murder of Bethlehem's children by Herod. None of that will ever stop Jesus from being the cure for the sin that plagues this world. Matthew's final use of the Old Testament in chapter 2 is probably the hardest. If you think those two are difficult, Jesus, as. It, As Jesus is taken by Joseph up to Nazareth, right? He returns to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth. Matthew says in our text in verse 23, He came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, here's your challenge. I'm going to give you a challenge. You find the Old Testament passage that promises that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. And when you find it, point it out to me and I will come preach it the next Sunday. I don't think that you're going to find it. It shouldn't be that hard of a task though because Matthew says this is what, it was spoken by the prophets. Literally Matthew's saying more than one prophet has said this. The problem is, I don't think you can find an Old Testament passage that Matthew is quoting. And so there's a couple of common ways that this is explained. First off, some folks say that this word Nazarene sounds a lot like the word Nazarite from the Old Testament. So it means that the Messiah is supposed to be a Nazarite. Now, remember um, Samson in the Old Testament. Right? He never, never cut his hair. That was part of a Nazarite vow. Nazarites were never to eat anything from a vine or touch a dead body. Problem is Jesus ate things from a vine and touched dead bodies. And so he was not a Nazarite, nor is there any Old Testament passage that says the Messiah would be a Nazarite. And so that can't be what Matthew means when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. Second, some folks point out this word Nazarene sounds a lot like an Old Testament word in Hebrew. It's the word Nazar, and it means branch. And this is better, like Isaiah eleven verse one, pictures David's family tree as if it has been cut down, and yet he says the Messiah will be like a branch, a Nazar, growing from the roots of that tree. Um. The problem comes in, even though I like this one a lot better, I don't think that's what Matthew means because it is hard to connect the word Nazar in the Old Testament to the name of the city in the New Testament. The two words really don't have anything to do with each other. So most likely what this is, Matthew intends this as a general statement to say that Jesus will be despised and looked down on. Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, was, to say the least, not highly regarded at this point in time. There was a negative connotation with anybody being from Nazareth. Remember in John chapter 1, when, when Jesus' disciples tell a man named Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's reaction was, can anything good come from Nazareth? And in fact, it continued to be a term of derision. In, in Acts chapter 24, verse five, Paul is on trial and the prosecutor essentially accuses him of being, quote, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, right? So what Matthew is pointing out is that Jesus went at a very young age to be raised in a city, Nazareth, a city that was known and despised. It was mocked. He went on to bear that exact same kind of derision that is implied. And this, this is what the prophets, multiple prophets said would happen. Psalm 69 verses 19 through 21 speaks of, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness for I look for someone to take pity, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Clearly that's about Jesus and Jesus saying, there's reproach, there's shame, there's dishonor. This is how people looked at Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse three says, he is despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is taken to Nazareth that he becomes known as Jesus of Nazareth. It was the very purpose of God to take him to that despised place. And Matthew tells us that up front in spite of all the rejection and animosity and disrespect that Jesus endured. It's the plan of God. If that rejection was not part of the plan of God, then why on earth would he ever be taken to a place called Nazareth? which was so hated and rejected. And so Matthew, as he's telling this story, the life and history and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all the while he's doing that, he continually points us to the story that God has been telling, to say there's a plan and a purpose for everything that Jesus endured. God knows what he's doing because he's been telling this story from the beginning. It is the fulfillment of, of every Old Testament prophet. Sometimes Jesus fills prophetic promises, like the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Sometimes he fulfills prophetic pictures. This whole chapter is basically a, a picture album of all the places where Matthew's gone to the Old Testament and he sees these types and images of Jesus. Right? He's like a new exodus coming from Egypt, setting his people free and assuring their obedience and faithfulness. He's, he's the hope for exiles. Even as you've experienced and, the, and endured the wickedness of this world, take comfort that Jesus has come into a world like that to bring hope. Jesus will be looked down on and despised. The, the Messiah King is willing to associate himself with the lowest the loathsome. Y'all, that is great news for me because that's what I am. And for my sake, he was despised and rejected and acquainted with grief and not esteemed. Jesus has come to live for us in perfect righteousness and then die on our behalf to give us his righteousness Matthew, as we go through this gospel, intends for his readers to see that. All the while, he's saying, yes, here's the story I'm telling you about Jesus, but don't miss the story that God's been telling us from the beginning.